How do you balance the outrageously funny with dark, serious material? Amy Schumer talks about that challenge and more when she joins us to talk about her memoir, The Girl with a Lower Back Tattoo. I think I was in so much pain with what was going on with my family, and I felt very helpless and I had nowhere else to turn. What does the process of creating poetry look like? My colleagues Greg Coles and Lovia Gayarke will join us to talk about this week's poetry issue. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Amy Schumer joins us now, and she is not only Amy Schumer, but she is also the author of The Girl with the Lower Back Tattoo, which is now out in paperback. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk, let's scroll back a year to when this is coming out in hardcover and just talk about the backstory of, that's like, no pun intended, but the backstory (laughs) to this book. Like, how did this come about? How did you decide to write a book? Much like David Sedaris, I also kept journals my whole life. And so it kind of started with just reading back these journals and wanting to find a place for some of the entries. And then and then also I started being asked to do kind of like tributes or make speeches at events. Like Gloria Steinem asked me to speak at a birthday party. And the the response I got to what I wrote or when I did a tribute to Joan Rivers, like, and it just really paid off in a way that it felt like it really affected people in a positive way, and it and it made me interested in in seeing if I if I actually had the potential to book. So I'm curious about these journals. Why did you start keeping a journal, and what were the kind of things that you recorded in it? I think I was in so much pain with what was going on with my family, and I felt very helpless and it was right when my dad got MS when my parents were getting divorced and my mom was starting a, an affair with my best friend's father and I think it was because I had nowhere else to turn and we went bankrupt we were like really poor all of a sudden it was it was, it was a lot for a teenager I was gonna say that's like a cocktail for adolescent angst it's like a perfect storm yeah yeah it was like not the coolest age for that to happen. That's why when I read these journals, I just I, I just feel bad for the girl. You know, I'm like, oh, hang in there, honey. You know. And did you find writing to be therapeutic when you were keeping these journals? Yeah, I think it was it was definitely therapeutic, and and I don't know. I just kind of wanted to have an account of everything. I felt like I needed to document everything. And it's like the most mundane. (laughs) Some of them are just like, I'm mad at Jen. Like she ignored me in study hall, you know, (laughs) or, or, or really kind of detailed things about just starting out sexually. And, you know, I got to second base with whoever tonight, you know, and, uh, and just talking about that and what it felt like. And, and it's really interesting to look back. I think I'd, I'd be interested in, in doing more with those, but but they are pretty painful to, to read back for me. Like some of them are really funny, and I'm like, I was just so already how I was going to be. Like I was just like, you know, when I get older, I'm like, this guy, he had sex, and I made him sleep in the other room. And it's just like the stuff that I still do, <laughs> you know, where I'm like, oh, my God, I was like already so much of my my nervous system was set up for how it was going to be. 
I'm curious about about your progress as a writer. So you started off with journals and you've written in so many different forms, obviously, writing stand-up pieces, writing performance pieces, and then writing for a TV show and finally here writing a book. How different is the process working in those different forms? I think sort of any writing and its feelings for me are the same, where, you know, if it's a, just a scene for the TV show or writing part of a, a, a movie or something, it's like I kind of go under. Like, I, I love to write for hours and hours and hours to just sit in bed and, and write, and it's such an escape. And so in that sort of sensibility, I think it's the same, but totally separate from stand-up. I think it's just the most sort of meditative and it's a, it's a really good way for somebody who likes who likes to escape and does not do heroin <laughs> yet. <laughs> so for but writing with comedy, I've always thought it's such an interesting process because you write something, you get immediate feedback that night, and then you can go back and you can polish it based on the feedback. And so you're like constantly like polishing this little Natsuki sculpture and making it perfect until you have like the ultimate nugget of 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 comic genius. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's science. You know, you've I've never made this analogy before and I might regret it, but it really is like, you know, the stand the club is like your lab. And so by the time you're filming it on a special or a, a late night set or whatever, you've tested it. It's been vetted. So you know where the laughs are. It's not like, will they laugh at this tonight? Like, you know, they will because they've been like your lab rats in a way where it's like, okay, it's ready to be seen. I've done the experiments. So with a book, though, even though it's a much slower process in a way because you're writing this enormous thing over six months or a year or whatever it might be, the tail end then is much faster, right? You go to your editor, you get some feedback, you go to a second edit, you know, you have a copy edit. Like you don't have the time for all of that fine-tuning or polishing. Did that make it more difficult for you or was that a relief or how was it different? That actually was not my experience. I, I probably rewrote each of these pieces 10 to 15 times, honestly. And, and I was I was working with Casey Dumont, who, she's my sister-in-law, and it's really, it's really funny because over the years, anytime I've written anything or any speech or anything for a magazine, I send it to her, and she would edit it for me, and I just really trust her. And, uh, and so we got to work on this book together, so it would be like she would read it and make prompts and suggestions and we'd reorder it and I would take another pass at something and then I'd have friends read it. Like this was not like, yeah, I just, just kind of spit it out. and It was a real process. So take that everyone who thinks that every celebrity book is sort of banged out in an instant. Um, <laughs> one of the hardest things in a book, in a memoir, in a book of personal essays is tone and kind of striking the right tone um, between sort of personal and funny and serious and likable and, you know, daring. And I'm curious if you found that that balancing of tone and finding the right voice for the book different from finding your voice in other media. The book was just pretty all in all dark. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there were moments of things were funny, but it was like sort of had uh, a book deal earlier and it was like they they wanted something for me that I felt I couldn't deliver. Like I wasn't interested and I thought other people would be better at doing that. But it's like, you know, they're like, well, can you write a list of the top 10 places you've ever made out with, you know, like something mm -hmm. like that. And I'm just like, uh, no, thanks. But I did understand just 
you do want those moments of levity after you hear something like or read something so heavy. Right. You know, I think you just we just crave that. So tone was something that was that was not my main focus, but that's what like also my collaborators were good with with keeping me on track for. And just like making a movie, the, the, the few movies that I've made, that the sort of thought about the tone and that stuff has also come from from the people I was collaborating with more than with me. How did you balance the personal and your childhood versus where you are Mm -hmm. now and your professional? Because it seems like you focused more on the personal than on sort of your career trajectory in this book. Was that a deliberate decision? Not really. I think I more had to be reminded to put career stuff in there. It's just I was encouraged to write that stuff because people were interested. Like it really, and I was like, really? Like I was surprised because I just want to hear about people's personal lives. You know what I mean? But, it, but then it's like, no, people will be interested and talk about the, your sort of like progression and, and like how it happened for you. Because I find myself watching those late night talk show interviews or an act, actor studio or an awards acceptance speech. And I'm just like, who cares? Like <laughs> who cares? I, I'm like, I don't understand just the idea of an actor talking about their process or of a celebrity, like talking about the vacation they just went on. Like, I'm just like, it's all so dark to me and like, and disturbing. You know, I don't like small talk. It's it's kind of unbearable to listen to, but, but then it's like, no, well, some people are really interested in, you know, how you got from A to B. And so I kind of trusted that. Was there anything that you felt ambivalent about including on the personal front that you thought, okay, like maybe I shouldn't go here, maybe I shouldn't write about this in this way or Yeah, I was I was nervous about a lot of it, you know. What were you most nervous about? I was most nervous about my sexual assault. Mhm. You know, the way I lost my virginity. Yeah. Uh, I was assaulted and then and and my mom. There's nothing that'll make somebody more vulnerable than, than talking about their parents. And with mine, like when I recorded the audio of my book, I finished the chapter on my mom and I just started just like completely sobbing in the recording booth. I'm in, just in Hawaii in the, this, these sound engineers, like these guys must have been like 19. And I just finished that chapter and just sat there and just sobbed. And um, they just kind of sat there in silence. And then I was like, okay, um, but with anything where it was like going to be a person that like people knew who it was and I wasn't mm-hmm. using the alias or something. Like my mom read, read every word in that book. And, and I was like, if there's anything you don't want me to put, if there's anything you want me to change or, you know, something. You, and the you know, only thing she changed was that I had the wrong day of the week that I went to Hebrew school. What's been the most rewarding thing? The book's been out now for a year. You've gotten feedback. You went on book tour. You've gotten reviews. What's sort of been like the most rewarding thing specifically about writing your own book for you? Honestly, the money. I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just so fun to make that joke. Um, mm, just having someone say, I just read your book feels really nice. I just did a thing with Scholastic where I got to speak at, at Carnegie Hall in front of like all these kids who got these kind of scholarships. The art and writing awards? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, actually getting to be in front of them and like just speak to them and just say the things that I kind of wish I'd heard. That, and that was only afforded to me because I wrote that book. So that, that's what popped in my head. But 
the most satisfying thing was writing it and working on it with the uh, with Casey, and then and then like like holding it, getting it sent to me, and like looking at it, and being like, I, I mean, it still feels pretty surreal that is that it exists, but it was the process. And so now having that physical book and it's done, do you feel like, okay, I'm finished. I've written my book. I don't need to do that again. Or are you thinking maybe I'll write another book? No, I'll definitely write another book. I loved it. I really loved it. And I have, I have more secrets that I just wasn't going to share. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, yeah, and I'm reading some of those journals. I just, you know, there's so many of them and I, I love reading other people's journals, so I haven't read Sedaris's yet. Oh, I, you have I, to read Sedaris's. They're very I know. Fun. I'm told like that. That's what I'm rewarding myself with. I've had so much reading for work that I'm like, I don't, but I will soon. And then we'll get your journals, thirteen to thirty, the diaries. <laughs> thirteen going on thirty journals. <laughs> All right, Amy. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. This was really fun. Thanks a lot. Amy Schumer is the author of The Girl with a Lower Back Tattoo, which is now out in paperback. My colleague Greg Coles joins us now. Our listeners know him as one of our What We're Reading folk, but he is also our poetry editor. Greg, thanks for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right. This week, we have a special poetry issue of the book review, and the headline on the cover is Poetry in Action. Yeah. So our New York listeners may remember that Gosh, probably 15 or 20 years ago, there was a... You're asking a lot of our New York (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Not on the podcast, right? Uh, The New York subway system had a campaign going for a while, for for a number of years, called Poetry in Motion. And what they would do is, up on top of the subway cars where, where you run ads for skin doctors and things like that, they would, in place of those ads, have a short poem, something kind of pithy uh, that lent itself to a quick read between stations and was a way of bringing poetry to the masses. So it might be a haiku. It might be a K. Ryan short poem. It was a, a, kind of a, a wide range of, of different poetry, but poetry in motion was um, the idea. So poetry in action riffs on that, obviously, and it, we, we went with it for a couple of different reasons. One, there has been a big movement, uh, motion in poetry over at, at least the last probably five years or so of kind of activist poetry. Yes. Um, it, there's always been a strain of activist poetry, and this issue gets at that a little bit, goes back some generations. But it has risen to the forefront, again, of poets kind of asserting cultural identity, political voice, standing in resistance to kind of structural inequities. Poetry has gotten much more political over the last probably five years or so. The, is there like a good slogan, like the political is poetic or the poetic <laughs> is political? Or the, There's not. I'd say one of the people who was groundbreaking in bringing it to the forefront of poetry was Claudia Rankine, her book Citizen, that mm-hmm. um, did so super well. It was it was a New York Times bestseller. Um, it's poetry, but it's also kind of mini essays, prose poems. Um, it incorporates some visual art in it. And the cover of the book Citizen shows a 
the hood from a hoodie just cut off and left blank. And it's it seems to be in obvious conversation with the Trayvon Martin case. And in fact, Claudia Rankine is in this poetry-themed issue as a reviewer, not, not as a reviewed. Um, the other reason that we went with poetry in action as a theme for it is that the issue is anchored by these visual images of draft poems. So um, I I approached a handful of of poets. We ended up with um, six different poets, asking them to share with us working drafts of their poems before they were finished, complete with, you know, handwritten markups. Um, Robert Pinsky is one of the contributors, and he's got a little doodle of a desk lamp uh, in the margins of his. They each kind of explained how they went from this version to the finished version or what revision means to them. Um, and so poetry in action, it was to show the process, mm-hmm. um, the kind of the, the literal action of writing a poem. So so you have this wordplay there with action as in activism and action as in the draft process. So are the poems that are here reproduced in the book review, have these all been published now elsewhere in their final form? Most of them have, but Jenny Zhang's poem, uh, which is untitled in there, I, I think is, is still in draft. It's it's still in process. She's working towards something finished. So there are some heavyweight names from the poetry world in this issue, including John Ashbery and Louise Gluck and Allen Ginsberg. Yeah, the John Ashbery is in there as the subject of a new biography that looks at his early life. Louise Gluck is in there uh, as the author of a book about poetry. It's it's actually a prose book, but it's kind of her look at how poetry works, what it accomplishes. And uh, yeah, Allen Ginsberg is in there with a posthumous book, of course. Um, (laughs) But he taught for decades and taught poetry and creative writing. And this is a book that compiles his notes as a teacher about the Beat Generation. So it's uh, it's kind of Allen Ginsberg looks at his peers. And there's also Jory Graham. Are there new voices as well? Two of my favorite reviews in this issue, um, partly because they're so enthusiastic and, and so smart about the, about the books that um, they're covering, are both debut books by young poets from small presses, one of them is, is quite a big small press, Grey Wolf. That's a collection called Whereas by a poet named Laylee Long Soldier. She is a member of the Oglala Sioux tribe. And it is reviewed by Natalie Diaz, who is a Native American poet herself. Whereas looks at America's history of the treatment of Native Americans, um, and it it is centered on a congressional statement of apology to Native tribes um, for our treatment of them. But it it kind of spins in the direction of how the bureaucracy uses language to insulate itself against actual consequences. And so it's a collection, sometimes very angry, sometimes very playful, and kind of reclaiming English language for everyone mm-hmm. in America, um, not just for kind of the the system structurally. And then the the other one um, is from a tiny press called Delete Press. The name of the book is Giving Godhead. Um, Godhead, all one word there. It's by a young poet named Dylan Krieger. Again, wordplay in the title there. It's obviously very risque. Uh, it's a book that 
grapples very much with sex um, and sex as trauma. Um, that there's this kind of running theme throughout um, that suggests that Krieger was abused as a child. She doesn't write directly about that abuse, but she writes about sex as trauma um, throughout. But it's also trying to celebrate sex, and it, it's sex and religion. So you, that's why you get the Godhead play in there. And so she's trying to look for kind of spiritual wholeness in the course of this book. And that's reviewed for, for us by a guy named Thomas Simmons, who was just really taken by it and connected it to this recent movement called the Girlesque, uh, which is a feminist, playful, very kind of word-drunk movement in poetry. Uh, read perhaps a little bit of uh, her poetry, but I'm not sure that it would it would, <laughs> it would work in this um, family podcast newspaper podcast. Um, yeah, he, he had to quote carefully <laughs> in, in the course of the review. Greg, you oversee all of our poetry coverage. How hard is it for you to, given how many books there are published, poetry a year to like to 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 discover new voices and to decide which ones to you know give this kind of attention to? It, it's a great question, Pamela. I mean, the fact is, no one publication could hope to cover the entire territory. We, I, I get just hundreds and hundreds of books of poetry. Some of them are very good, but not really breaking new ground. Some of them very good and breaking new ground, and I still can't hope to to cover them all. I mean, even a single-issue publication like Poetry Magazine, which is excellent, they have their blind spots, or they, you know, they can't hope to cover everything. So I see our role at the book review, especially since we, we cover other things besides, I see our role as kind of giving an overview mm-hmm. of, you know, here's the lay of the land. Identifying some exciting new poets, new trends, checking in occasionally with established, well-known poets, kind of following the scholarship, and um, looking at things like the Allen Ginsberg, people who still may be exerting an influence, kind of past masters, but who are still relevant somehow today. So I, I try to do all of those things. When you bring it together in a special issue like this, you see how those all play against each other, and I, I think we do some of that um, throughout here. We've got a tribute to Derek Walcott on, on the back page, a you know, beautiful essay by a, a poet named Ishian Hutchinson, who is himself a Caribbean poet, um, writing very much in Derek Walcott's style. We've got a review by Claudia Rankine. I mentioned she wrote a review in here. It's of two tribute anthologies to the great poet Gwendolyn Brooks, whose centennial was this year. Well, that actually is a nice spot to introduce a new member of the book staff, Lovia Gayarke, who joins us. Hi, Lovia. Hi, hello. So you came from uh, the New Republic, where you recently wrote about Gwendolyn Brooks. You reviewed a biography. I did. Angela Jackson, I think in this sort of, in celebration of her centennial, a lot of books have come out, including these two anthologies. And Angela Jackson wrote a really great bio about her uh, called A Surprise Queenhood in the New Black Sun, I think. I may have butchered that. Um, But it sort of looks at, revisits Gwendolyn Brooks's life, but from the perspective of more of her community activism and her role as essentially a pioneering black woman um, in poetry, right? So she won the 1950 Pulitzer Prize. She was but, the first African-American yeah. to win the Pulitzer. Yeah, yeah, which is an incredible 
feat in of itself um, and somehow hasn't really, I think, even, that hasn't even garnered her, I think, the recognition that she deserves. And so I think Jackson does a really good job of trying to reintroduce this poet that we, I argue, sort of take for granted sometimes. All right, well, tell us about <laughs> Gwendolyn Brooks for those yeah. who aren't familiar with her and her yeah. work. Yeah, so she um, she was born in Kansas but moved to Chicago when she was really young. And I think even though she sort of maybe is considered sometimes um, formally a transplant. Chicago was really her muse, uh, the people of Chicago. She really embedded herself um, in that community, so she was raised there. And she started writing poetry very young. Her first poem was published um, when she was 13 in the Chicago Reader, which is funny because she applied for a job there later in life and ultimately didn't get it, um, even though she was a contributing writer for most of her life. But she was very diligent, and I think that's one of the things that was really impressive about her was that this diligence was sort of born out of observing people around her. And so her poems are really just about everyday people, everyday black people, and specifically she had this sort of what I consider a motto, but maybe wasn't for her, uh, this idea that she wanted to represent black people as not exotics, as just individuals. And I think that especially for the 50s, right, you're on the cusp of the civil rights movement, you're um, kind of in the middle of Jim Crow towards the end of it, is really is really spectacular. Um, I think it does a lot to sort of say, okay, black people are neither represented as sort of Richard Wright and Native Son as the sort of the aggression of the angry brother of, of, of America, but they're also not these people who should only be recognized because of their, you know, incredibly like angelic forgiving nature in the face of trauma, right? And so she, a lot of her poems cover just like, what does it mean to fall in love? What is it like to move? And and I think that's what the bulk of Annie Allen, her first, uh, her second, sorry, her second um collection and the one that won her the Pulitzer is really about and why it was just so extraordinary for the for the committee. There's like a real documentary impulse to her poetry yeah. um, and, and a sense that there's something radical about the documentary impulse when it's being used to, to show a people who we don't often see kind of day-to-day life. Yeah. That, um, that the culture doesn't often recognize the day-to-day life. Definitely, definitely. Is there a collection of hers that you would particularly recommend to our listeners to, to start with? <laughs> yeah, you know, actually it's not her collection, but her <laughs> first novel, Maud Martha, that I think is, that's where I began. That's where my love for Gwendolyn began, and I think is a really accessible way to sort of get a taste of her poetry, but also of of this idea of what she was trying to do. So Maud Martha is similar to Annie Allen in that it follows um, the life of a single black person, black woman, but it's more of a novel and it tells the story of Maud Martha from birth to sometime in the post-war period. And I think it's great because it's sort of, it's 37 poems. I, I actually, in my review, sort of think of it as a precursor to Claudia Rankine's Citizen and this idea that you write this poetry criticism, except for this poetry fiction, um, and you meld these two genres together. And so I would say that's where that's where people should begin if they're really interested. Maybe people who already know her but want something to revisit, the Anniad, I think, is really an impressive piece of work. All right, yeah. then. Well, that brings us right back to the theme of poetry in action. <laughs> Luvia, thanks for joining us. Yeah, of Greg. course. Thank for you. Sure, thank you. So Greg Coles and Luvia Garke and our poetry issue, which is online now. Our intrepid publishing reporter, Alexandra Alter, joins us now to talk about what's going on in the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What are we talking about this week? 
This week, there are lawsuits to discuss and big book deals. So a lot of publishing news this week. On the big book deals front, we well, finally— Well, you're starting with the good news, and then I'm we go to the start. bad news, or is it vice versa? It depends on what side you're on on the lawsuit. All you right. could view it as good news. We'll see how you feel. The big news in terms of deals this week is former FBI Director James Comey, whose proposal has been out with publishers for several weeks now, finally made a deal with Flatiron Books. And it's interesting. They you know, they seem to be kind of ramping up their political publishing arm. They recently acquired books by Joe Biden and Jill Biden. Oh, interesting. So this is another big, big get for them. This was a heated auction. I think all the major houses were bidding on this book. Of course, you know, Mr. Comey has been in the news, particularly with the Russia investigation and his firing by President Trump. Everyone's going to want to hear his side of the story. He's promising new details. It's not really a conventional memoir. He's basically says he's going to be drawing lessons about leadership and ethics from his two decades of experience in government. What's really interesting is that there have been a number of deals recently where it's like what people want is the memoir and what they're getting is the book on leadership. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think I think he's trying to walk the line between those two things. You know, they were explicit that there will be previously undisclosed details mm-hmm. about some of his experiences. And so I think people are really hoping, you know, to hear more about what his encounters with the Trump administration were like. Another interesting thing about this deal is it's the book is coming out very quickly. It's coming out next spring. And his agents tell me he's writing it himself, and he's already hard at work on it. And they said the reason he feels such urgency to write it quickly is because he wants to get out and give interviews and talk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he hasn't really given a major interview at all. He gave his testimony to Congress, but he hasn't, you know, really said much, at least to the press. It'll be interesting to see him kind of on the press door for this book and how frank he's going to be about his feelings and, and his opinions of, of the Trump-Russia question. All right. A little bit of inside baseball questions. Flatiron Books, which house is that part of? So that is part of Macmillan. And, you know, there are big names so far. I mentioned Jill Biden. They also have Oprah, of course, that she's a huge figure within publishing. She has her own imprint there, her memoir. So I think those are, you know, those are their big kind of they don't, They've books. done kind of some other celebrity type of books. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Okay. All right. Let's get to another aspect of the law. Yes. So in, in other legal news this week, there's a lawsuit that I've been following because I wrote about this company last year. It's called Kinder Guides. The publishing house is Moppet Books, and Kinder Guides are these picture books based on classic novels. They did a version of Jack Kerouac's On the Road, Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany, Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea, and, you know, aimed at sort of the 6- to 12-year-old market kids that are a little young, one might think, for serious novels like that. So they kind of condense the plot you know, to a picture book format. Were these totally in earnest or was there some irony to them? They were very, very earnest. There are other picture books based on classic novels that are more kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of aimed at the hipster parent market. Like there's one based on Moby Dick that I find hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) How does it start? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, there's another one based on Jane Eyre. I mean, there's sort of this niche in publishing and it's mostly, I think, to amuse the parents who get tired of reading Pat the Bunny over and over. So there was the pedagogical question about whether or not, you know, young kids really should be reading Hemingway at this, you know, at the, when they're just learning how to read. There was also a legal question. When I wrote the piece, I called a couple of copyright experts and said, you know, these are 
These are books that are essentially taking the characters and the plots of these famous novels, some of which are not in the public domain yet. They're still under copyright. Is this a violation? And, you know, one expert I talked to said, looks like it. Mm -hmm. And a few weeks later, a lawsuit was filed (laughs) by uh, Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House in conjunction with the estates of four famous writers, Capote's estate, Jack Kerouac's estate, Hemingway's estate, and Arthur C. Clarke, Mm -hmm. because Kindergarten's did a version of 2001 A Space Odyssey. So this has been before a judge who was looking at the question of whether these were, in fact, teaching guides, which you can do under fair use, or if they were copyright violations because they were really just copying what was already out there and taking the plots and settings and characters wholesale. And the judge ruled that these are copyright violations. He ruled in favor of the estates and the publishing houses. So it's a bit of a blow to Moppet Books and Kinder Guides. Of course, you know, there are plenty of books in the public domain. If this is their thing, they can continue in that vein. And they are planning to do books like Pride and Prejudice. So I think, you know, the business could survive, but they're going to have trouble if they want to do contemporary literature or famous novels that are still under copyright. It reminds me of those board books that explain advanced scientific uh, physics, quantum physics for babies. Yes, yes. Which my 12-year-old and 10-year-old and 8-year-old find (laughs) fascinating and hilarious, but I don't know if it has enlightened them about subjects particularly. All right. Well, never too young to start causing a lawsuit. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks, Pamela. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Greg Coles and Jenny Schusler joining us as a special guest and a new employee of the Book Review, Lauren Christensen. Hi, guys. Hi. All right. So let us start with our special guest, Jenny Schusler. So what am I reading? What are you reading? I'm relieved to report I am reading something because sometimes uh, when you've asked me to be a special guest, I'm in some kind of a TV watching gag <laughs> that I am. Um, Jenny Schusler, who reports on ideas for yeah, the New York Times. Yeah, but I've actually been reading a couple of novels. I actually uh, like have polished off a few novels in recent days, I can say. So I was at the uh, beach in New Jersey over the weekend, and I borrowed a copy of Mohsin Hamid's recent novel, uh, Exit oh, West. Oh, yes. Great what did you think? I really liked it. It was very moving, really beautifully done. You know, I wouldn't call it a beach read, but it was the perfect thing when you actually had four hours. There are to a lot of, of beaches in it, though. That's true. Yeah. Did you compare it in your mind to the um, Underground Railroad? That's funny. I did not at the time, but then I was talking about it at uh, lunch over the weekend with the person who lent it to me, and it, she sort of made that association. I mean, it's interesting because it also involves a kind of magical conveyance, you know, which wasn't Don't an actual underground railroad, but it was this sort of some kind of unspecified system of wormholes where people... So the, the book, it's sort of about... It seems to sort of be reflective of kind of the experience of refugees and immigrants today where these sort of mysterious kind of manhole-type, you know, holes appear in different places, you know, kind of war-torn or otherwise distressed places, and people kind of start popping up all over the world. And um, But it doesn't sort of dwell a lot on the mechanics of it. It just sort of happens. Um, so, no, I didn't make that association, but it's it's kind of an interesting, interesting one. And you have another book in front of you. Yeah, so then I started reading, on the train back, I started reading this new novel, which I believe has just been published by Dan Z. Senna, called New People. I think it's I her, just read it myself. Oh, you just yeah. read it yourself? Okay, no spoilers, because I'm only in the middle. Um but uh, she's a writer I really like. I loved her first novel, Caucasia, which I think was published about 15 years ago. So I was really happy when this one kind of landed on my desk. 
And uh, it's set in Brooklyn in the mid-90s, which is like gives me a warm, nostalgic feeling. It also has a subplot involving a dissertation, which I also really like. Not really sure how that's going to pan out. <laughs> so just to sort of summarize, it's about this woman in her 20s, a biracial African-American woman who's sort of uh, kind of wrestling a lot with her own identity. She's very light-skinned, and she is sort of dealing with all these issues of her own identity, how other people perceive her. Sort of similar themes to Caucasia, but it's, it's at least so far much more in a kind of comic, slightly satiric um, mode. And there's a great—I uh, was trying to think of a great passage to read. It's not kind of quite that sort of book, but there's this— I just sort of finished this great scene involving a misadventure on a fire escape, which um, I thought was very funny and just sort of weird and one of those things where you— you know, it's a dumb question when you're talking about writers, but you just think, like, how did you come up with that? I don't know. <laughs> I hope it's not inspired by real life. That's all I can say. Greg, what are you reading? Have you guys heard of the French writer Emmanuel Carrere? Greg is joking. Of course. <laughs> I, We've been I talking about him obsessively <laughs> I on the podcast. <laughs> um, Carrere has, has kind of infected us one by one in the book review, like a virus passing passing around. Um Thanks largely to our colleague Barry Guin, who has been a fan going back years, and he's kind of pushed him on us. And so I know that Jen Salai and I think Paul Sagal, uh, maybe John Williams, all in in previous weeks have have talked about reading one career book or another. The one that I'm reading now is one that none of them have talked about yet. It's his new book, The Kingdom, which I, I have to say it's the first career that I've read, and I'm I'm about 50 pages in. It's off to kind of a slow start for me because uh, it it's hugely about religion, Christianity, and specifically Catholicism. Carrere converted to Catholicism in his early 30s, and I should say I'm a Catholic convert myself, but there's something in, in his description of his conversion. Um, it, he, he since relinquished his conversion. He's, he, he's now agnostic or, or atheist again, as he was before his conversion. Um, he's going back and reconstructing all of this. And there's something both kind of semi-embarrassed about the fact that he was so fervent about it, but he was really fervent <laughs> about it. And so there's something very kind of godly and preachy about it too, in kind of an off-putting way. He, he's about the he's book or about more, his description? No, about of, the religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, about his... His depiction of the religion? His depiction, I mean, he, he would read a Bible passage a day and kind of meditate on it and write about it. And he just, you know, surrendered himself to, I mean, it, it was, it's a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> you know, it's like reading about somebody's middle school crush. You know, it's, it's all very deeply felt. Again, he's clearly embarrassed going back and reading about it now. And I know from reviews that the book will pivot at some point and talk not about his conversion, but about the conversion of St. Paul, who, of course, was previously Saul of Tarsus. And I'm not there yet. So it becomes, instead of this kind of personal testament, it becomes a historical novel about the the very earliest days of Christianity. You know, we'll we'll see. (laughs) It's career, as I know from Barry, and as I know from hearing you all talk about it on the show here, does a real blend of the personal and the fictional in his in his work, and it's um, sometimes a, a hard line to distinguish. Right now, what I'm reading still feels very memoirish, um, and and I'm a skeptic, but I'm open to converting. 
All right. Let's have a, a brief non-career moment. And uh, Lauren, you are not reading Emmanuel Career. What are you reading? I am not. So I've actually just finished Elif Batuman's The Idiot. Having never read the Dostoevsky, I now am moved to for the first time. So I guess she's gotten me over that hump, uh, which is a real testament to her. Uh, I, I was just fascinated by this novel. I think what was so interesting about it, it's set in 1995 at Harvard. It's, you know, one of my, my favorite genres, the campus novel. So I'm, I'm drawn to characters like Selim. She's a, a Turkish descent student, and she's sort of, you know, on the surface, she doesn't ever want to make any judgments about the world. And so her friends can kind of criticize her for being too agnostic or, you know, um, indifferent to the things around her. But she's really processing things on, on a level that I think so many people who do talk about their judgments aren't really making those mm. those uh, kind of silent, very very considered intellectual decisions. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I love about this book is its treatment of emails, which is obviously very new in 1995. Salim conducts this entire relationship with a sort of older, kind of enigmatic student named Ivan. And what one of the things I, I love is that. It's kind of in vogue right now to criticize email and digital communication overall. You know, my the millennial generation doesn't know how to communicate face to face anymore, and everything that's lost in such and such when you're just typing instead of talking. Lauren says this as a millennial. <laughs> I just say. Um, and one of the things I love is I think this book really explores what one can say and the ways that language um, is is opened up in when it's written uh, as opposed to face to face and and how much how not not necessarily more but what different meaning can come through sort of a, a digital life mm-hmm. and I think it, it they're sort of created two narratives you know one is is the the email narrative, which has its own cadence and its own significance, and it's this relationship conducted in email. But of course, they do see each other in person, and that almost becomes a different thread. And so these threads overlap and also run parallel at sometimes and don't intersect, and I think that's a really a beautiful uh, skill that she has. Interestingly, right after I finished that book, I picked up Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, which is another novel about this, this one set in modern-day Ireland instead of uh, sort of 20 years ago, but the threads are very similar. It's also a, a digitally conducted relationship for, in large part and sort of dealing with these really prodigiously smart young women who find ways to kind of revolutionize uh, digital communication in, in terms of just how they not only conduct their relationships with men, but also how they see the world and make sense of it when it's all seems to be crumbling around them. It's interesting that now we've gotten far enough into the digital era that it's not just a question of situating a book either pre-digital era or post, but even to different, you know, periods within the digital era, like you can have the MySpace novel or whatever. Um, (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Early digital zone, Mm. you know, time. All right, well, I'm going to return us to the true subject here, um, <laughs> Emmanuel Carrere, because I just finished Lives Other Than My Own, which Jen Salai talked about on an earlier podcast. The book review actually did not review this book. I don't know why. We sometimes make these errors. But it's a very hard book to describe without giving it away because I think one of the interesting things, Greg, you mentioned this, that you know the book is going to pivot. And this book pivots several times so that you you come into it thinking it's going to be about one thing and then you find that it that it turns into something else and then into something else again. And those surprises are part of what makes it such an interesting and engrossing reading experience. So I don't want to give too much away. I can say that it starts with 
the 2004 tsunami in Sri Lanka, which was also the setting of a book that I love and that many here at the Book Review love, which was Sonali Dharaniagala's memoir, Wave. And I'm, as I confessed last week, a fan of tsunamis in general and of very sad (laughs) memoirs. And so this starts out in precisely that sweet spot for me. But Carrere and his family are not directly affected by the tsunami, but they are surrounded by people whose lives are, and thus the title, Lives Other Than My Own. And in a way, the entire book is an exploration of how people's lives are linked to others and how things that don't directly affect one person end up affecting them and how our lives are and in one sense, literally carried by other people. And it's really quite beautiful and moved me to tears in a couple of spots. There was a a story that the New York Times Magazine did earlier this year about Carrere tied to his latest book, The Kingdom. And the title of that story was How Emmanuel Carrere is Changing or Reimagining Nonfiction. And I want to quote actually from that magazine story, which quotes from the book, because I think it describes in part what is so incredibly innovative about Carrera's work. And I think, as far as my reading goes, kind of unique to him. So this is from Wyatt Mason's piece about Emmanuel Carrera, and he's talking about this book, Lives Other Than My Own. There's an amazing little moment in the book that gets at what Carrera is able to do. Carrera is just awaking to the devastation of the tsunami in Sri Lanka, and he is walking around meeting people who are seeking their loved ones in vain. He comes upon an English tourist, quote, an overweight, middle-aged Englishwoman with short hair who had just lost her girlfriend, unquote. And here is the passage from the book. I imagined the two of them getting on in years, living in a lovingly tended house in an English town, taking part in its social life, going on a yearly trip to some distant country, putting together their photo albums, all that shattered. The survivors return, the empty house each woman's mug with her name on it, one of them forever forlorn, and this heavy woman sitting slumped at the kitchen table with her head in her hands, weeping, telling herself that she's all alone now and will be until she dies. Going back to the piece. Among the many astonishing passages that stands out in Lives Other Than My Own, Michelle Huelbeck says, The most heartbreaking for me is about the old English lesbian who had just lost her companion in the catastrophe. Carrere did, in fact, meet this woman during the holidays in Sri Lanka that ended so terribly, but he imagined the mugs. This seems to me the margin of invention Carrere finds in this book where, quote, everything is true. It's not insignificant. Because they're not nothing, these mugs, it was exactly at the moment of the mugs I remember that I burst into tears, and then I had to put the book down, unable for a few minutes to continue reading, unquote. So that's Michel Huelbeck talking about career, um, and I think he puts it very well. I'm going to end on that that <laughs> solemn note, um, but I hope it draws people to the book because it really is. It's one of those books that I think you have to read to really get at what what he's doing in the book. And um, like Huelbeck, I cry too. <laughs> Got it. I want to either run out and buy the book immediately or jump out the window. I can't. <laughs> yes. Well, you know what? You can borrow this book from Barry as I did because I'm about okay. to return it to him. So, Jenny, Greg, Lauren, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.